way. Uh, if you're watching at home and you've never been with us, my name is Ed and I'm one of the pastors here and we're starting a new series today, as Jordan said, and we're going to start out with a passage from Acts chapter 20 in which the Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to a group of very good friends, a, a, a group of Christians from the ancient city of Ephesus. And it's important to know that context because he's saying goodbye, which means that his, his attention is riveted on what is absolutely most important. And I want you to hear what he says today. I, I think that the next five weeks is going to be preaching to the choir at Gateway. Uh, because of my experience here, uh, God is raising up a generous church here. And I believe that he wants us to lean into that even more powerfully. So, uh, this, is, this is really, this series honestly is launching um, uh, the direction for Gateway for, for the next several years. Uh, so, uh, Acts chapter 20, and I'm going to start reading in verse 32. The Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to a group of very good friends. And remember, his attention is riveted on what's most, most critical, most important for him that he wants them to remember. So if you would, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. Acts 20, 32 through 35, brief section. This is just part of his goodbye speech. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. One uh, commentator translated that to the, to the message of his free bounty. Which can, which can build up, uh, which can build you up. And give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Why uh, exercise your ministry that way, Paul? In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You may be seated. Did you notice that Paul didn't just offer up the principle here that it's more blessed to give than receive? He actually uses that principle as motivation for our behavior. It almost seems like he's cheating. It, it's like he's encouraging them to be generous, but he's encouraging it because it's self-serving. In effect, he says, you'll be better off if you live this way. If you're a giver, that's better for you. So is that really true? And, and is he cheating? You know, uh, does it have to be uh, hurtful to you for it to be generous? So we're starting a new series today, as Jordan said, called The Generous Life. And I, I have a feeling this series is going to be big for us. Uh, it, it, it just thinking about it and preparing for it has already been big for me personally. My prayer has, has been that it will be for you as well. And today we're going to look at the surprising key to success. The surprising key to success. Uh, and let's, let's launch this with a word of prayer before we jump in. Father, we have... Um, had much to do and uh, much to accomplish and much to worry about, and our hearts have been attuned to many things. And we ask this morning that you would help us attune our hearts to you and your word. 
that your spirit would really speak to us, that you would break open our chests and massage your word, your truth into our hearts and our wills. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, Adam Grant is a professor at Wharton Business School and the author of the best-selling book, Give and Take. And uh, in this book, uh, Dr. Grant identifies three reciprocity styles. That's a fancy way of saying three different ways of transacting or negotiating in relationships. The first style he calls takers. According to Dr. Grant, I'm going to quote, quote, takers like to get more than they give. They tilt reciprocity in their own favor, putting their own interests ahead of the interests of others. They, they believe that the world is a dog-eat-dog place. They feel that to succeed, they need to be better than others to prove their competence. They self-promote and make sure they get plenty of credit for their effort. Garden variety takers aren't cruel or cutthroat. They're just cautious and self-protective. If I don't look out for myself first, takers think, no one will, end quote. So if you're the kind of person who's always and excessively looking for the best deal, if, if you're always wondering what you're going to get out of this, if you're always looking for credit, you might be a taker. The second reciprocity style he calls matcher. Matchers operate on the principle of fairness. Their mindset is, if you take from me, I'll take from you. If you, if you give to me, I'll give to you. Uh, if you're a matcher, your relationships are governed by exchanges of favors. If you're very concerned that everything be fair, if you're, if you're willing to give, but you'd like to know what you're going to get in return, you might be a matcher. By the way, most of us tend to be matchers. And finally, the third reciprocity style is giver. Givers are others-focused. They tend to provide support to others with no strings attached. They ask themselves, how can I add value to this person? What can I contribute? According to Dr. Grant, quote, Givers are relatively a rare breed in the workplace. And he's focused on workplace relationships. But of course, this bleeds over into all of our relationships. They tilt reciprocity in the other direction. Whereas takers tend to be self-focused, evaluating what other people can offer them. Givers are others-focused, paying more attention to what other people need from them. And I'm going to put this next part on the screen. I want you to see this. If you're at home, I'm sorry that this is such a long quote, but I want you to see this. These preferences aren't about money. Uh, they aren't about money. Givers and takers aren't distinguished by how much they donate to charity or the compensation that they command from their employers. Rather, givers and takers differ in their attitudes and actions toward other people. If you're a taker, you help others strategically. When the benefits to you outweigh the personal costs, then you, then you offer. But if you're a giver... Uh, you might use a different cost-benefit analysis. You, you help whenever the benefits to others exceed the personal costs. Alternatively, you might not think about the personal costs at all, helping others without expecting anything in return. If you're a giver at work, you simply strive to be generous in sharing your time, energy, knowledge, skills, ideas, and connections with other people who can benefit from them, regardless of the cost to you. End quote. I have mentioned... Uh, Dick Littlejohn before here at Gateway in years past. Mr. Littlejohn was my Sunday school teacher when I was in the seventh grade. He found out that my mother 
was a single mom and not particularly wealthy. So Mr. Littlejohn found ways to invest in me over the next several years in, in small ways and in large. And ultimately, uh, Mr. Littlejohn helped pay for my college for all four years. He did it in a way that was a, as anonymous as possible. It was through a foundation. In fact, I was a sophomore in college before I learned that Mr. Littlejohn was the foundation. Here's the thing. Over the course of my years in college, I discovered several other people for whom Mr. Littlejohn was doing the same thing, including one of my best friends. I had no idea how he even knew Mr. Littlejohn. Mr. Littlejohn was a giver. He tilted reciprocity in the direction of other people. He used a giver cost-benefit analysis when the overall benefit to everyone involved outweighed his personal cost, then he would give. So if it did tremendous good for, for me at difficult but allowable cost to himself, then he would give. You'd have to know Mr. Little John. You'd have to follow him around and know his life to uh, suspect that he was very, very wealthy uh, my mother, who admired him greatly, complained that Mr. Littlejohn always looked like a bum. He, he, uh, his suit was old and disheveled. His car got from point A to point B. That was about the only thing you could recommend about it. And yet he owned a chain of grocery stores across uh, western South Carolina, mountains of North Carolina, and part of Georgia. He did very, very well. And Mr. Littlejohn had decided to invest his considerable income as a giver. And it made a world of difference for me. So here's the question for us today. Which of these styles is the most successful? And why? You've heard, nice guys finish last. You've heard that one. Is it accurate? Well, uh, according to uh, Dr. Grant, research confirms that Nice guys are, in fact, on the bottom of the success ladder. Let me read a couple of sections from Dr. Grant. In one study, when more than 160 professional engineers in California rated one another on the help given and received, the least successful engineers were those who gave more than they received. These givers had the worst objective scores in their firm for the number of tasks technical reports, and drawings completed, not to mention errors made, deadlines missed, and money wasted. This same pattern emerges in medical school studies. In a study of more than 600 medical students in Belgium, the students with the lowest grades had unusually high scores on giver statements like, I love to help others, and I anticipate the needs of others. Across occupations, it appears that givers are just too caring, too trusting, and too willing to sacrifice their own interests for the benefit of others. There's even evidence that compared with takers, on average, givers earn 14% less money, have twice the risk of becoming victims of crime, and are judged as 22% less powerful and dominant. Uh, this research obviously seems to confirm that nice guys finish last. So, if givers are at the bottom of the success ladder, then who's at the top? Is it matchers or takers? I'm not going to take a poll. I just want you to think about that for a second. Which do you think it is and why? Which reciprocity style is at the top of the success ladder, matcher or taker? And I want you to know, the reason I didn't ask for a show of hands is because I cheated 
It's also givers. As we've seen, the engineers with the lowest productivity are most likely givers, but when we look at the engineers with the highest productivity, the evidence shows that they're givers too. The California engineers with the best objective scores for quantity and quality of results are those who consistently give more to their colleagues than they get. The worst performers and the best performers are givers. Takers and matchers are more likely to land in the middle. This pattern holds up across the board, across, uh, across countries and across occupations. The Belgian medical students with the lowest grades have unusually high giver scores, but so do the students with the highest grades. Now, over the next uh, weeks, we'll talk some about how a giver lands on top of the success ladder instead of at the bottom. But the key takeaway for today is the surprising, shocking really, truth that being a giver is a key to success. But why should we be shocked? Didn't Jesus tell us? Look, no one, not one of us woke up today and thought, how can I fail today? How can I blow it at business? How can I blow it at work? How can I, how can I just blow up my family? And, and how, can I, how can I just utterly fail today? None of us started our lives out like that. None of us spent our teenage years thinking, I want to be a miserable failure one day. We all want to be successful. And I'm not talking about some hyper-spiritualized definition of success. I mean, we want to do well at our jobs, with our relationships. We want healthy, happy, productive children. We want a healthy, happy marriage. If we're married, we want to do well at our jobs, and we want to be rewarded for doing well. We want to be successful, and that's a God-honoring desire for the most part, or it can be. Now, of course, we can get off track at times. We, we, we lose sight. We, 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 we get caught up in the accoutrements of success. We measure it the wrong way. We try to collect as many shiny objects as we can, and we can be fooled into thinking that equals success. But in our heart of hearts, we know that's not the case. And that's not what this conversation is about today. We're not trying to expose corrupted visions of success. We're not trying to adjust our sight so we're looking at the real thing. I'm assuming that you're pretty good at that and you have a pretty good idea when you just stop and reflect on what real success is. This conversation is about how we get there. If real success is a part of the finish line that we want to get to, how do we get there? And surprisingly... Dr. Grant's research makes it clear that part of the answer to that is we increase our chances of being successful by increasing our giving quotient. I'm going to say that again. We increase our chances of being successful by increasing our giving quotient. We lean into the giving side of our nature more about that next week. We learn to be people who give first. We practice giving and we encourage it in the others around us. This is the surprising key to success for us. So one of the keys, listen, one of the keys for success in your family is to create an atmosphere where you're nurturing giving and you're building givers. One of the keys to your success as a neighbor is to be a giver. One of the keys to the success of your business is to nourish and, and encourage and, and build and help create a culture of giving. And one of the keys to success for us as a church is to build a culture of rabid generosity. Last week, 
I sent out a text and an email asking you what was the most generous thing that anyone had ever done for you. And I was blown away by your responses. Thank you. I was blown away by the number of responses. A lot of you responded. I was also blown away by the substance of your responses. Several of these uh, texts and emails could be sermons. For instance, uh, one guy who was very, very focused, very focused and very skillful at sports when he was younger, he said this in his... uh, in his answer to that question, when I decided on focusing on a career outside of sports, a childhood buddy of mine, listen to this, bought me a pair of expensive formal shoes so I could be motivated to take up a corporate job and not rely too much on my sport. He, in fact, convinced me to move away to a large metropolitan area and stay with him so I could be really far away from my family and focus on doing something better for myself. Another woman said, A family donated the organs of their loved ones so that my mom could receive a lung transplant. Incredible, she says. Another person said, I love this one, my husband proposed to me on a lifeguard stand and married me. It changed my future. He stuck with me through difficult times, but God loves me no matter what. My husband is a close second, she said. I posed that same question last week in an interview that I had with David Hornick. So, who is David Hornick? Uh, We're going to be hearing from David uh, a few times during this series of conversation. Uh, David is the founding partner of Lobby Capital, Lobby.vc, and creator of, and executive producer of the Lobby Conference, lobbyconference.com. He started the first venture capital blog called Venture Blog and the first venture capital podcast called VentureCast. He invests broadly in information technology companies with a focus on consumer-facing software and services, enterprise applications, and infrastructure software. Companies like Splunk, Fastly, GitLab, Evite, Ebates, Drop, WePay, Bill.com, Pay Near Me, and many, many more. David also currently teaches business and law at Harvard Law School and Stanford Graduate School. School of Business. Very impressive. And you have not heard anywhere near all of it. But probably the most important thing for our purposes is David is one of the heroes of Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. Adam Grant builds his, all of his research and his point here around four or five uh, heroes who are very successful in different careers, and yet they've done it by being extravagant givers. And David was one of those heroes. So I connected with him on LinkedIn. And I said, I'm a pastor. Churches like us are often known as takers because we spend all of our time counting how much we bring in and how big our building is and how many people we have. And some people in the culture could be forgiven for calling us takers. But that's unfortunate because our founder was the original and most radical giver. So I wonder if you would let me interview you in any format. I'll Zoom with you. I'll fly to California and talk to you if you'll let me. And, and you speak to our conversation, congregation about giving. And David Hornick said, wow, I'd love to. So I interviewed him. And you're going to hear from him a little bit. But what I want you to hear first is the end of our interview together. Because I asked David that question. What's the most generous thing anyone has ever done for you? And I want you to see his answer. What's the most generous thing anyone has ever done for you, David? (laughs) That's a good question. I mean, I, people. Thank you for that thoughtfulness. That's. Yeah, I mean, people offer up all all sorts of 
things to, you know, what's interesting to me is the, the real likely answer is that I was, I was an attorney and I would go to board meetings and I would comment on things. And at one of those board meetings was a venture capitalist. And at one point he thought to himself, huh, David might be a good venture capitalist. And he said, have you ever thought about being a venture capitalist? And I said, oh, yes. And, you know, yes, I've thought about that. And and had you? I had, for sure. Okay. Like the, the venture business is an astonishing business. It's, like, it's a dream business for someone like me where I get to engage with thousands of people and, and, and work with the ones I love the most to do things that, that change the planet. Like, find, that's just an amazing business. Um, and so he said, hey, maybe, you know, ultimately he introduced me and invited me into his firm and, and I, I joined the firm. Um, the reason I pause is that, you know, his motivation wasn't necessarily to make my life a bit better. His motivation was to have me be a good venture capitalist. <laughs> because in the end, venture capital is just about creating more money, right? So the good news is it transformed my life in a way that was fantastic. And the good news for him is it made him a lot of money. So it was a win-win. <laughs> That's a great and intriguing question, isn't it? So but was it an uh, act of generosity? Yes, exactly. Or was it an, an act of <laughs> selfishness? Um, I'm going with generosity. Yeah, absolutely. So was it an act of generosity or was it self-serving? And surprisingly, God's answer might be yes. It might be both. If you missed everything else today, don't miss this. Offer, volunteer, donate, give. Because giving allows you to help others. And, and giving because it ultimately will benefit you. Give because you're making your world a better place to live in. And someday in the future, some old guy might tell a group of people a story about you that changed his life. You altered the course of his life through your giving. And he will use that to inspire others. Let's do the math. If I'm isolated, I'm alone, I'm taking care of my needs, I've got one person taking care of me. If I'm invested in a community of 100 givers, I've got 100 people taking care of me, looking out for opportunities for me, looking for ways to resource my needs, looking for ways to care for me when I need it, looking to show me that I'm seen. I have to say, what Adam Grant has really done in this book is to prove what we already knew. Jesus is right. It's more blessed to give than receive. So before we end, let's, let's work our way again through the Acts 20 passage. Verse 32, remember, said this, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those, all those who are sanctified. Paul is handing his friends over to God to be blessed by God to be made fruitful, to, to experience an inheritance. He wants good things for them. He wants God to do good things, and God will deliver because he's faithful, as we sang repeatedly this morning. That's what's behind that phrase, the word of grace. Remember I said, one translator translated it, the message of his bounty, free bounty. I commit you to God and to the message of his free bounty, Paul says. Our God is profoundly generous God. We, we just finished a series of lessons here at Gateway over several weeks about some of the things that, that God offers us and, and demonstrated to us that we are indeed very, very rich people because our God is generous. 
verse 33 and 34. It says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In other words, I have not depended on your gifts. There was a cultural precedent for that, by the way. Paul could have expected to be supported by his disciples and, and those who were listening to them. This, him, this was typical for orators and teachers in the time of Paul, they would be supported by the local community that was benefited from their teaching. This was a well-known phenomenon in Paul's day, but Paul didn't adopt this practice. Instead, he worked. He worked very hard everywhere he went. And why did he organize his ministry this way? He tells us in the next section, verse 35, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, when he said it is more blessed to give than receive. Why did Paul refuse to adopt the typical cultural pattern of allowing his listeners to fund him and benefit from that? He did it to enable himself to be generous to those who were weak. And then he motivated us to also be generous. He motivated us with a critically important reminder from Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So let's end this morning by going back to Adam Grant. I'm going to skip uh, later toward the end of the first chapter. He's still laying out the basics and the premise of the book. He's telling you what his argument is. But he, he, he reaches a kind of summary point, and I want you to hear this. At one point early on, he says, According to conventional wisdom, highly successful people have three things in common. Motivation, ability, and opportunity. If you want to succeed, we need a combination of hard work, talent, and luck. But there is a fourth ingredient, Grant says, one that is critical but often neglected. Success depends heavily on how we approach our interactions with other people. Success depends heavily on how we approach our interactions with other people. Every time we interact with another person, we have a choice to make. Do we try to claim as much value as we can, or do we contribute value without worrying about what we receive in return? Giving, taking, and matching are three fundamental styles of social interaction, but the lines between them aren't hard and fast. This is interesting. Listen. You might find that you shift from one reciprocity style to another as you travel across different work roles and relationships. It wouldn't be surprising if you act like a taker when negotiating your salary, a giver when mentoring someone with less experience than you, and a matcher when sharing expertise with a colleague. But evidence shows that at work, the vast majority of people develop a primary reciprocity style which captures how they approach most of the people most of the time. And this primary style can play as much of a role in our success as hard work, talent, and luck. And surprisingly, shockingly even, the reciprocity style that most often generates success is giving. So, I want to give you some homework this week. Uh, there, there aren't many of us here this morning, so this should be easy for the 9 o'clock service unless we have an influx next week, and we may. But homework assignment number one, I want you to come to church next week prepared to give something to someone. And if, you, if you're watching this at home, I want you to think about some way next week that you can give to someone who's part of your spiritual community. I want you to come next week prepared to give. We're going to have, we're going to have a giving session. So I want you to come. I, I don't know if it's uh, 
uh, someone who you know needs a meal and you're going to give them a Grubhub card while we're here. Or you're going to come to someone and say, I'd love to take you out to lunch on me wherever you want to go. Lobster. Let's go. Or if it's, uh, you know, I just noticed that you need prayer and I, I want to give you the time of my prayer. Let's pray. I want you to come next week prepared to give something to someone here at church. Homework assignment number two. Sign up to volunteer at Gateway. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up if they would. So uh, we need workers in Kidstown. We can't have children at the 9 o'clock service, which inhibits the number of families that can come at 9 o'clock because we don't have enough volunteers. So sign up for Kidstown. Just, just sign up for six months or for a year. Give us some help to get over the hump, to get our folks back. Or sign up to set up and break down. Every Sunday, if you notice on the floor, there are tons of little squares, carpet squares. We set those out every week. This is a gym during the week for our preschool and for basketball teams who play every night here. And then on Sunday morning, we have to set this up. So we, we lay out carpet squares. We put out all these chairs. And then at 11 o'clock, we put out even more chairs. And then after the 11 o'clock service, a bunch of people break all of that down, set all the chairs back, roll the basketball goals out. If you haven't seen it, it's an operation. Sign up. Care team. We are in the process now of providing meals for a lot of people who are in a lot of different needs, and, and it's the same people signing up. So let the care team know that you're willing to cook or greeting and hospitality. We're not yet doing that because of COVID, but, but eventually and hopefully soon, our cafe will be open every Sunday with coffee and maybe a snack or four. Go to mygateway.life slash volunteer and jump in. Give! Because it makes your church a better place. Give! Because it's the key to success for you. And it creates a wake behind you. Those of you who have children, you're training them to give. Third, I want you to set a goal to give to a neighbor or coworker this week. Don't snooze on this. I'm serious. Set a goal to give to a neighbor or a coworker this week of some kind. Any, any, I don't know. You think it up. Fourth. This week, I want you to look up Matthew 7.11, James 1.17, Romans 8.32 at some point during your devotions this week. Those scriptures are on mygateway.life on the sermon card. James 1.17, Matthew 7.11, Romans 8.32, and ask yourself the question, what do these tell us about God? All right. I'm excited about these next four weeks, and I hope you'll be here. And I hope you'll drag somebody with you who needs to hear what God has to say about giving because I'm convinced that Jesus is in the business of creating a rabid culture of generosity here at Gateway. You know, of course, the first four books of the New Testament are really ancient Near Eastern biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in one of those biographies, the fourth one, John, he gives, uh, at several different points, he gives these high-level summaries of what he thinks the, the ministry of Jesus means, what, what's the significance of this. And the most famous of those is John 3.16. And from that summary, we find out that God is the ultimate and primary and initial giver. Because what John 3.16 tells us is that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And regularly at Christian churches throughout the centuries, we have celebrated that great gift by remembering him in a meal of mercy. We've remembered his sacrifice and his death, and we remember his resurrection. I hope you grabbed a vial on the way in, and this morning we're going to celebrate that now. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. If you're visiting with us, if you can participate in communion at your fellowship, you can participate here at Gateway. And before we do this, let's pause for a moment of quiet and uh, let's confess our sins to God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought and word and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We ask that you would have mercy on us and forgive us because of your son Jesus Christ and because of what he did for us. We're so deeply and profoundly thankful for his sacrifice and we're thankful that if we confess our sins, we know that you're faithful and just and you will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.